Want to make your own podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easy, then distribute it everywhere, and even earn money. All in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. Here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then, you can distribute your podcast to Spotify, and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel like I have an outlet for the creativity and ideas I want to share with the world. I recommend you give it a try. We all have a voice, so share it with the world. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters to get started today. Welcome to the Days of Noah podcast, where we talk all things historical, biblical, and strange. We're trying to unpack the supernatural, how it connects to history, the present, and the future. So we really just want to dive into that journey of how do we understand the context of what we see around us, what happened in the past, and how it connects to the future. Jesus said, as in the days of Noah, so shall it be again when I come back. That's what we want to understand, so enjoy. And I have a coworker from work that sent me a long email with a bunch of Bible references, and I'm methodically going through and working through those things. Um, and what was uh, it, that in reference to? In I mean, like Genesis six giants and so on. So okay. and and some was of the things he of the belief for or against. He's against, which is surprising okay. to me because he and he and I are on the same page on a lot of like alternative views of the world, conspiracy things. So I was kind of surprised, and I'm like, well, I was thinking about it this week. Maybe he, somewhere along the line, he was taught, you know, this this idea. And actually, he didn't bring up Seth or anything. He was basically trying to dismantle the idea about angels doing this and, and so on. So I haven't even got into, okay, well then what does it say if it doesn't say angels, right? Right. So, um, uh, Dr. Laura Sangler, um, in her, uh, roots of the federal reserve book, um, she's got a, a good section in, in here. It's actually chapter seven. She didn't start off with that. Um, the origins of the Nephilim. So she's, she digs into it pretty deep. So she's got a section that I'd like to compare notes on what your coworker was, scripturally trying to prove against whereas she's got scripturally showing for right um which would be a good reference yep yeah i think so one thing that i came across i think it was from dante fortson i really should make note when i uh find these things out like because i've been listening to michael heiser on youtube um, some of Dante stuff. I just found a really good, and it's I think it's like nine years old, a uh, two-hour presentation from Doug Hamp. 
that goes through a lot of okay. good details about what we're talking Not about. Familiar with him, Douglas Hamp. Uh, he was he was one of the. I don't think I've heard yeah. Him. They uh, maybe you haven't heard the episode yet. He's he's been on Blurry Creatures. Um, okay. Yeah, I'm still uh, a little behind. I think I'm in the. 60s. Oh, okay. I th- if I remember right, his book is called Corrupting the Image or something like that. But he's he's right in line with you know Marzuli and Heiser and so on. <clears throat> so yeah, I forget where I hear these sources, but the good news is as I remembered the key point so this is you're going to find that's kind of fascinating so in the new testament the word for demons and jesus uses it unclean spirit right so that's that's a pretty familiar term and again if you're if you're coming from the view that you know demons are fallen angels you might kind of just gloss over that and go whatever i know what it means Here's what's interesting. So the Strong's Concordance, which are are you familiar with the Strong's lexicon of Mm -hmm. language? Okay. So they're... Yeah, give you the Greek and Hebrew uh, root word uh, meaning. Exactly. So the word for unclean there is uh, Strong's, let's see here, 169, I think is the number. Um, and this was, uh, the Strong's, um, definition. So going back to the root yeah. of which word of un- unclean, un- okay, un- so un- unclean. unclean. So actually let me click this link. No, I'm sorry. The, the, the Strong's number is 2513, 2513. If someone wants to look it up. Okay. So the word is catharos. Um, Oh, I'm I'm sorry. That's that's for the word clean. All right, hold on. That's the that's the antonym. So they give they give what the word is, and then they give the antonym. Uh, okay. So anyway, uh, unclean or impure. So this is kind of fascinating. Um, an adjective derived from not clean, not catharos. So akatharos is akathartos. Sorry, is unclean, and katharos is clean. So derived from not clean or purged pro- properly, and then says not pure, and then in parentheses, because mixed, i.e. adulterated with a wrong mix, and hence unclean, and then says because tainted by sin. And then the antonym, catharo, clean, means free from wrong mixture. So if we think about what we're saying and what Enoch says and other sources are saying, the source of where did demons come from? We're we're saying they're not angels. There's something separate. And, and the origin of this word unclean literally means something not mixed or, or sorry, uh, unclean is mixed or adulterated. You know, if you, and maybe a way to picture this, if you were in a lab setting and and you were doing a test and it called for you to use, you know, uh, a, a solvent like acetone, let's say, right? And it, and you were supposed to have pure acetone and then you were going to maybe put a, a chemical into that and do a test. If you had 
contaminants or if you had other solvents or other debris in that acetone, that would be an impure mixture, right? It would be adulterated. It would be contaminated. And I think they use percentages and stuff. So if it's 100% pure... And obviously, you want it to be as pure as exactly. possible. Exactly. Yeah, or whatever the test. test calls for. For, 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 the in, yep. for the integrity of yep, the test. Exactly. So we're, we're talking about the origin of demons. And where is it coming from? A mixture of human DNA and angelic. And so that's a, and that's a mixture. You might be, you might be uh, leading to this. Uh, when you said mixture, the, the first thing that popped into my head was the image Daniel received of the statue. Oh, sure, like the clay and iron was and the then, bottom, and, and and then the and then when he got to the foot, it talked about the clay and iron that they would not cleave, they would not mix properly. Interesting, yeah. So I've I've heard, I've heard that mentioned that that very well could be, you know, clay would make total sense with how Genesis says, you know, man was made from from the dust of the earth or from the clay, from the ground. And then iron could be angels, possibly. But yeah, I thought that was really yeah, interesting that, that, you know, the word speaks directly to something impure because of mixture. And it makes total sense, lines up completely with the origin from angels mating with humans. And the alternative being that they're just fallen angels like like Satan, there's there is no mixture other than, you know, because tainted by sin, that would that would fit. But in terms of it being described as impure, adulterated, or mixed, that that would not fit. And I think, you know, I've heard uh Chuck Missler uh, quoted on this, and Doug Hamp said this as well, that the more literal you take the Bible, you know, the more things just open up and become so much more clear. And even if you're a skeptic, because um, there's, and I'm not saying skeptic like an unbeliever, um, skeptic on whether to treat it literally or not. I know many people that don't take certain parts of the scripture as literal and they think it's figurative or imagery or whatever, or that already happened. And that's everything. I think if you were to take science as an example of how they test hypothesis, you know, they'll look at one Avenue, they'll look at another Avenue and they'll compare the evidence and come to a, a conclusion. And I think if someone is properly studying the word, you should look at it literal and you should look at it the other. So I definitely welcome your coworkers thoughts and love to look at the scriptures on how he's rebuttaling some. Yeah, absolutely. But we all, but everyone should look at it literal to, to at least exhaust that line. Right. Right. So unless you get something really clear in the text that says, okay, I'm not even going to start with literal. Okay. But otherwise, yes, start there. And work your way towards metaphorical or allegorical if you've, like you said, exhausted looking at the literal. Because, you know, this this is, I think, you know, how Mike Heiser talks about thinking of how a, a Jewish person 2,000 years ago would have thought about these things. We're so used to a culture of 
Hollywood and, you know, everything, the, the meaning of things is lost because we've derived everything we come up with creative, creatively. And then we, you know, spin that off into books and movies and TV shows and, and cartoons and, and all this creativity. But if you go back through human history where, sure, you're going to have some fiction writing, I'm sure. But by and large, you know, <laughs> you know, life was much more serious, you know living and dying was was much more a reality um you know we're we're pretty safe in our modern way of living uh so it's i don't know if you've ever heard that saying about um i don't know if it's a saying or not but but basically like if if a country was was in wartime you don't really have many poets <laughs> right so you're you're kind of too busy dealing with life and death to be writing poetry and and fiction and things like it's that. It's funny you say yeah. that because uh as a family we're going through the Bible and uh so I we we read a section in Old Testament and we're I started in Psalms and moving towards the end of the Old Testament and then also the Gospels uh the New Testament. But uh it's funny you say that cuz a lot of the poetry music uh that was written by King David was during a time of war during a time of, of high stress and he was fearful for his life. And they were, they were prayers put to music unto the Lord. Sure. But, but, but in that, but in know. that sense, it was, but I, I hear what but in saying. that sense, it was, uh, yeah, like a prayer or a lament towards God and, and, you know, showing that he still had faith. So yes. So he's obviously using his creative ability, but he's not, it's not derived of meaning, right? It's not just, you know, just for fun that he's writing this stuff. So I just kind of, yeah, it's not, it's not leisure time. Uh, yeah, it's not leisure time. Right. So thinking about it that way, like the, the stuff that they're talking about is much more likely to be about really important stuff and, and things in our day, we've lost so much of the meaning of words and, and activities that we do. It's so far removed that it's really easy, I think, for us as a culture to to think of it as, oh, that's that's just made up, you know, that's just somebody being creative, writing a story or whatever. Um, so, yeah, so I can go through a couple of the things that that he was talking about, because I think it's really beneficial to to go through. And some of the things I hadn't even heard of that idea. Um so one of the first things he brought up was about in Enoch talking about the height of the giants. And if you go with the 300 L's, which are supposed to be like a foot and a half per L, then you'd have a 450 foot giant. And then I can't remember who I heard this from, but there's some idea that there was like a zero purposely left off in certain texts. I, I don't, I don't have the origin for that. Um, but actually I think that was on a, a blurry creatures episode because yeah, there was a guest that was talking about like, this could have been, you know, literally like a 4,500 foot 
giant. I don't know if that's yeah. They've had quite a not, spectrum just... of viewpoints on that show. I'm, I remember one yeah. guest was like, they definitely weren't any taller than eight feet. You know, that was like his. Cat. Yeah, that was. Um... So I think I think the right. I think, I think that the was size is not something that we should really focus on. Um, no, not at all. Especially at all. when you're talking about that size, it's more. I think the most most important aspect is what we talked about in the beginning here, with your definition of uh, of, of uh, an evil spirit, the mixture, the DNA root of they weren't pure. These individuals were not pure, regardless of what their size are. Because as we look today, and I'm not trying to go down a rabbit hole, Nephilim continue today, but it's it's different. There's still mixture, and and there's plenty of evidence in the world that our human scientists are dabbling with genetics in creating mixture. So that's, I think, where our focus should mainly be. But I'll, I'll let you continue yeah. your point. No, no, and he and he wasn't trying to say like try to disprove it just because of this size, but he was kind of starting there and saying, okay, according to the Book of Enoch, they were 450 feet. And then, and then he uses um, the verse, "Beware lest any man spoil spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ." Uh, I think he put Colossians two eight, if that's the right reference. And then, so he's saying, "Look, that story in Enoch, it's just a tradition told through men, not literal." And yeah, and then he. He references uh, Matthew, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels in, of God in heaven. So let's go through that one because, and we've talked about it some, but um, yeah. So that's obviously regarding marriage. It's regarding in heaven. And what we're saying is this act didn't involve marriage so much as it involved uh, procreation. And it didn't happen in heaven, it happened on well, earth. Well, it does say that in Genesis 6, they they married, did it they not? Took they wives. took wives. Yes. So it wasn't like they were just... It, it, it seemed in the traditional sense of uh, uh, when there's a marriage contract between one family and another, or one individual and a family, usually there's a, a gift that is given to, say, the father and the mother. You know, hey, I want to marry, what oh, do they sure. call that? Um, a, a dowry. dowry. And it, there's, there's evidence that that took place, that, hey, I want to marry your daughter. In exchange for your daughter, I'm going to give you this. And there was an exchange of knowledge and and things. So since he started out talking about uh, Enoch, um, so then my response to him was, you know, okay, it's not uh, biblical canon necessarily, but it's a historical reference. And, you know, I think we both agree that we, uh, I was saying to him, I think you and I both agree we use the Bible as our litmus test and we compare anything to that. And one of the thoughts I had about that the last week or two is um, if there's anything that conflicts in books like Enoch or Jubilees or Jasher, 
if there's anything that conflicts with the Bible openly, then we can likely disregard it. As long as we're understanding it correctly, we can disregard it. But I think a lot of it is not in conflict with the Bible so much as it is expanding on, right? It's, I would it's agree with background. that. It would give... Yeah. It would give more details on the Hebrew term Nephilim, Genesis 6, right. Yep. And and to that point, a, a lot of people will say, hey, if this is such a big deal about angels doing this, why does it go on to say, and God was grieved about making man, and, you know, he's going to deal with man? And I was thinking about that this morning— I think, you know, if if Moses wrote Genesis, okay, he's thinking about the context of this story and how his readers would understand it. He's not worried about retelling this whole story because biblically the story is about humankind. So it that's that's the central focus. And if books, well, I, I was about to say books like Enoch, but that's, I'm, I'm learning that's probably written around the 3rd century BC, so it would have been much after Moses. Um, but if that story but it's, uh, was it, it's interesting you said that, and I'm not to interject yeah. and mm-hmm. drop track. I've heard my pastor say it the other Sunday in reference to Job, the oldest book of the Bible. So if Job predates the five books of the Bible that Moses wrote, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, yeah, Numbers, Pen- Deuteronomy, Pentateuch. Mm-hmm. how mm-hmm. early would Job have been written? Is it possible that, that Enoch, I'm just throwing this out there. I have no evidence. Is it possible that Enoch had a revelation of Job, wrote the story of Genesis six in the book of Enoch, and then also wrote Job. I'm just, I don't know. I don't know who wrote it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure. That's, that's a good question. Yep. Um, Yeah. So then I go on to say, um, you know, Enoch and Jubilees uh, both confirm the Genesis six narrative of the Bible and add much more detail and context to the story that Moses does not provide likely because it was already understood by his readers. And as I'm proposing that it's about mankind. And so the way he wrote it was sticking to the story of humankind. He didn't need to elaborate on that. Um, And then I mentioned about Jude and Peter that we've talked about, referencing those offenses in Genesis 6. And I really think the more I look at those, there's really no way you can explain uh, those references as being, you know, angels that sinned with Lucifer, right, in the rebellion. Because the language um, reserved in chains under darkness. Mike Kaiser says that's taken directly from Mesopotamian writings, which is, which is what Enoch used as well. Okay, so it's it's using language that Enoch used. There's no reference to that anywhere in the Bible about angels being in chains or in darkness. So they would have had to get that from somewhere. 
they would have had to, the readers would have understood what that was talking about. And do you remember when uh, dad was on the call a few weeks ago and he said, well, what if it's just, you know, kind of the Holy Spirit giving revelation to something people didn't know about and then they wrote about it? But I think we have to remember, like, these things were not written for posterity. They weren't written going, what is someone in 2022 going to think about this, right? They wrote to their contemporaries. So if they're not going to elaborate on it, they have to know their audience and know that their audience is going to understand these terms. And so they would have been very familiar with, with Enoch and Jubilees and these other writings, um, which again, those were found in you know in Qumran and the Dead sea, with the Dead Sea Scrolls. So, obviously, whoever you know the scribes were that um, that took the time to write those down, along with the other you know Old Testament fragments that were found there, they would have they would have known that they were important enough to include, you know, and not just write them off. Um, yeah, so I think. Uh, well, I'll just go on because I'm kind of just reading my, my email response to him. Um, yeah, it's important to ask where did they get this imagery of being in chains and darkness? Um, they would have had to have the readers understood this context. Oh, another thing too is, you know, you know how in, like in Job it says, uh, God asked Satan, where have you been? He's like, yeah, I've been going back and forth in the, in the earth, you know? So uh Doug Hamp make this makes this point. So he's like arguably the most evil of all angels and he's not chained up in darkness. So yeah, so um that's come some of the things that he addressed and then I I started a draft of um cuz one of the things he brought up is um I believe it's a King James in numbers uh, it's either 13 or 14. I think it's chapter 14, verse 36. Where that would be the uh, report of the spies. Correct. So um, it uses the word slander in the King James. And so he's making the point that they were, they were telling a lie about these, these giants and that they look like grasshoppers in their eyes and, you know, that's why it was an evil report, because this is slander. And um, what's interesting is that there are other places in Numbers 13 and 14 that describe the report. And it doesn't use the word slander. It, it uses evil report, or a bad report. And if you look at the other translations of the Bible, like, Slander is only used in the King James. So, well, and that's, that's where we should use the Strong's right. or something to get the root of it. Yep. Because a lot of things get misinterpreted in the. There isn't contradictions, there's bad interpretation or translations. Right, right. Um, which reference 13 and what? So. Let's go to because there is no thirteen thirty six. Yeah, that must be fourteen thirty six. So let's go back to thirteen. So thirteen uh, twenty two, and they ascended by the south, and came unto Hebron, where the Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the children of Anak, were there. 
So there's there's a reference to um, children of Anak that we have other scripture that says those were known to be in uh, containing Nephilim or giants. Um, and then in 26, they went and came to Moses, to Aaron, uh, da, 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 brought back word to them about the fruit of the land. They're saying the land is good. It flows with milk and honey. Nevertheless, the people be strong and the cities walled and are very great. Moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. So moreover, they're saying, okay, children of Anak, they're saying, if you said moreover, like if I'm telling you, hey, man, I went to this restaurant and it had this and that. And I said, moreover, they had this. I'm kind of saying that stands out, right, when I use that term. So he's, they're saying children of Anak, that stood out as a big deal. Um, yeah, there's an emphasis. Yeah. Now, if you look up, if you look up the um, Strong's, it's 1681 for... Uh, for slander in that in the next chapter, where where is slander found? I think it's fourteen thirty six. Now what? I'm looking at the new New King James fourteen thirty six. Yeah, it wouldn't be in New King James; it would be in the original. Yeah, so I'm, I'm looking at purposely on a, a different translation. Oh, okay. Um. Yeah, I believe it's 1436. But the word means whispering, defamation, evil report. So defamation could be interpreted as uh, a lie. Um, but one of the definitions... That doesn't, seem, that doesn't seem accurate to me. No, you I'm... had 12 spies. You have two people that were full of faith. They were, it was a positive report because they, it confirmed the land was exactly what God said it was, a land flowing with milk and honey. It was a rich land. We need to go there because this is an awesome place to go. And the, the 10 that were fearful, lacking faith, gave a bad report or an evil report because it, they were scared. They did not want to go. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. It I'm, wasn't that they lied. It's that they were scared to go. So yeah. the richness of it. So New King James says uh, brought an evil report. An evil report. Yeah. So so just going through that Strong's definition, the third one is evil report or unfavorable saying. So it doesn't necessarily have to mean a lie or defamation. So, so he's he's kind of taking it to mean that that's what it means, but it could also mean what we're saying, evil report. Now, there, but there's other reasons to suggest that it was not a lie. Well, okay. Well, uh, here's here's one reason why I would say it's not a lie. God did not uh, God did not bring judgment, and he wasn't angry because of a lie. He was angry because they weren't full of faith, trusting that he can overcome this, this enemy. When he's demonstrated for the last few weeks, or whatever the time period was, because they made up something. No, they he, he judged them because they were scared and not trusting him. Yeah, the judgment was... Yeah. That's my, my take. 
Yeah, no, I, I think that's true, um, that the judgment was against lack of faith. But there's other things in context that that really make it difficult to believe that they were telling a lie. And I'll, I'll go through that. So, um, verse 29, I apologize if, I'm not sure if this is in 13 or 14, because I, I copied and pasted the verses. The Amalekites, the Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. And we talked about that last time, that uh, the root That's of that. That's in 13. Amalekites uh, means blood lickers. Okay. Um, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea. So all of these tribes, there's mention in the Bible about those ha- containing giants. Yep, and then, surrounding the promised land, in yep, the promised land. Yep, and then, then Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. So right there is an opportunity for Caleb to correct the report and say, No, 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 no. Yeah, they got walls, you know, there's a lot of people there. But he could have corrected them about what type of people there were there. And, That's a good point. You know, and he doesn't. Um, but then in response... He doesn't correct the accuracy of the report. Right. He yep. corrects their motivation. Yeah, yeah. Should we or shouldn't we go their in and take it? Their lack of motivation. Yep. Yep. And then... Um, but then the, the other ten spies rebut him and give more detail. Okay, We are not able to go against the people. They're stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people we saw in it are men of a great stature, and there we saw the giants, the son of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. So they're elaborating on the report and saying, look, let me tell you More details. Yeah, how yep. scary it was. Um, so one thing, too, is it's saying they brought the report. They give this information. That they could have included Joshua and Caleb as far as the details of the tribes. It doesn't really tell us that it was the ten spies that were the ones describing it, although it does suggest that in terms of rebutting. Where are you you talking about the they? Well, just in this whole section about they saw this and they told him we came to a land floweth with milk milk and honey. Okay, so verse 32, and they gave the children of Israel a bad report. Yeah. The they in that context, I would lump together the the ten besides Joshua and Caleb. Yes, and that makes sense because we we hear, so right now Caleb Caleb is the only one that has rebutted it, and later Joshua will, but I would would agree with that. Um, Okay, so furthermore, we see Joshua and Caleb address the Israelites in the next chapter that they were so afraid they wanted to go back to Egypt, even if it meant being slaves again. If the ten evil spies were lying, why didn't Joshua and Caleb correct them when they addressed their fellow Israelites? So here in 14 it says, And Joshua son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes. And they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel. So they're addressing all of Israel in response to to the 
the bad report that said, this is how dangerous it is. The land which we pass through to search it, so I'm in verse 7, is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. Only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defense is departed from them. The Lord is with us, fear them not. So, even this makes the point even stronger because now the the evil spies have uh, elaborated on this report, stating clearly, "Look, they're giants. This land devours itself. This is an exceedingly dangerous place, and we're like grasshoppers to them." And here you have Joshua addressing the whole company of Israel, and there's no correction to that. You know, you'd think if that is the time, that would be the time to set the record straight, and he doesn't. He says, he 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 doesn't dispute it at all. He simply goes to, doesn't matter, we can take it. God's with us. Their, their defense has departed from them. Yeah, so that's, that's evidence that it wasn't a lie, that it, what they were saying about the walls, about their statue, about their character, was all accurate information. It was just one was full of faith, one was not. One was fearful, one was saying, we can do this. Yep, exactly. Yeah, so so again, we only see, we only see slander in that one interpretation, or I'm sorry, one translation, and we see bad report or evil report in everything else, the NIV, the NLT, ESV, Berean Standard Bible, New King James. I mean, and again, it's only in that one one verse, and all the context shows that they didn't dispute the report. They disputed whether they could take it or not. Um, so yeah, so that's that's kind of what I'm working through. And then... One of the one of the other things, yeah, go ahead. Scriptures that I looked look at in the uh, the thinking that there definitely was angels that who did this act in Genesis six was the definition of sons of God. Did he talk about in his? Scripture does he make reference to that at all? Yes, yes, he does, and that's a that ex- he doesn't agree with it. Yep, or- yep, that's an excellent segue because um, that's one of the next things that I'm writing back to him. So, so he so he is assuming that fallen angels are a Greek mythology. Well, let me get to that in a minute. He he brought up a kind of a, a interesting point that I had never heard. He says, God created good angels and evil angels, and they all work for him. So he he's saying that there are no such thing as fallen angels, but there's only, there's good and evil ones, and he uses them as he sees fit. And he, he points to verses like um, Psalm 78, 49, he cast upon them the fierceness of his anger, wrath, and indignation and trouble by sending evil angels among them. And Ecclesiastes 39.28, There be spirits that are created for vengeance, which in their fury lay on sore strokes. In the time of destruction they pour out their force. 
and appease the wrath of him that made them. And we could we could think of even the the Passover angel, right? The angel of death coming through. Whether that's a an angel in his employ, God's employ or not, but this idea that there's no really such thing as a fallen angel. And I'll just be blunt, it didn't take me long to dispute that. So we again we go to Yeah, that one's pretty easy to dispute. Yeah, we, but we, we I, have I, I, but I'll yeah, go ahead and I'll then I'll kinda unpack that. Well, I mean, those scriptures are, are, are valid and they need to be discussed, but it doesn't address how, um, the creation. It All it talks about is how God uses spirits. Right, yeah. No, so I'll get so into if that God, in a bit. So, so yeah. if God created these angels, he doesn't agree that some fell, but... I would argue there was a portion that fell. So you have some that are still in servant service to God that are going to obey his commands. And then others that have the characteristics, they're just going to do whatever they want. God can use both sets of angels for his purpose. Sure. Yep. So there is the thinking that if there's a hedge of protection over us, like there was around Job, the enemy cannot touch him. But if God lifts his hand of protection, it's not that God's going to send one of his obedient holy angels to smite him. He's just removed his protection. So those evil spirits that in their character want to steal, kill, and destroy now have an opportunity to do what they want to do. Yeah, and I mean, that's a very important would, distinction. Yeah, and then and then obviously we live in a fallen world. We live in a world where if you choose something, you're opening yourself up to the enemy for whatever you open yourself up to. And um, so you look at the death angel in Egypt. I don't think it was. Uh, and I could be wrong. I don't think it was an like Michael, the archangel, the warring angel. I don't think it was Michael per se that went to kill, though he could have. He could have been commanded that way. It could be God's hands of protection came off. The evil spirits came in that want to, are, are thirsty of blood. And either way, it was God kind of orchestrating what is allowed, what is not allowed. I think that's a really good point because like... um you have that example in Job, you know, Satan, well, God sets the parameters for how he's able to touch Job and what he can and can't do. So we have a precedent for that, that very likely could have been the case with the angel of death, you know, to say, okay, you go do this, but it's only on the firstborn and it's only on the ones that don't have the blood on the doorposts, right? So he probably sets the parameters. But, um, yeah, no, I know it doesn't address the sons of God issue, but I'm going to get to that. But I wanted to just touch on this because he did bring it up. And so if there's no fallen angels and they all work for God, then there'd be no angels that sin. And then we would have a problem with Jude and Peter, right? Because it's the angels that sinned. So We have a problem with a, with a lot of... The, you have a problem scripture. with Satan himself, right? 
He's not fallen. Yeah. So he, who, he simply who, does God's work. So God creates evil angels for his purpose, then creates a judgment for those angels called the lake of fire. Yeah. Because he just wants to create something to destroy it. Yeah. No. Right. No, it's yeah, it really it really falls apart pretty quick. Um okay. So angels, the sons of God. Here we go. So let's see here. Okay, so he references And I understand he's not here to defend himself, nope, but nope. we're using his just trying to speak yeah. to what he's Yeah, I'm going off the email you. and the scriptures that he that he references and many of well, them we've used. So Job thirty eight seven, you know, when the uh morning stars sang and the and the sons of God um shouted for joy at the creation, right? So he's calling that uh, metaphorical. So he's saying, look, morning star, um, how do they sing? Well, morning stars are actual stars. And he says the sons of God are stars, moon, and sun. And how do they sing? Well, they're shining their light. And so he's saying it's all, it's all metaphorical. And so my response is, so if sons of God are metaphorical in Job 38 that as as sun moon and stars how do how does sun moon and stars take wives and have children in Genesis 6 because we have the exact same phrase ben elohim or ben or bain elohim there's different ways to say it um, so that, that makes no sense whatsoever because we're taking the exact same term. I think what it's referencing, and I think you would agree with me, is that the characteristic of these angelic ones, these spirits that God created, were so beautiful that they shone like stars. They had characteristics that were similar. Yeah, that's possible. possible. And we there, there's some talk um, in some of the guests on Blurry Creatures about um, angelic beings having a luminescence to them. So there may be a, well, li- I mean, even, a literal sense of that. Sorry. Yeah. Even even Lucifer was, I forget which scripture, it might have been Ezekiel or well, something. Well, the name itself, Lightbearer. Yes, the, the, the Lightbearer. There was it was described as, and I don't have the scriptural reference for it, but yeah, the light bear, the illumination of his countenance, um, even built-in music, like you know, he had characteristics inside of him to create music. So there was, yeah, some amazing attributes that was that they were built into their character, and we can't forget too that the Bible does um, allude to stars as being angels in Revelation 12, 4, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, which did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman ready to be delivered to devour her child. So and there's instances where, well, okay, I'll go on. Revelation one twenty, the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And so, that's Revelation what? 120. So there's 
there's description of stars actually being angels. Like, and that may be literal that the actual lights we see up in the sky are angels. So I think you can use those interchangeably, but if you if you took them as only what an astronomical interpretation of a star is, well, that doesn't work for Genesis 6. If you have a star <laughs> having children with human women, I think that'd be a bigger stretch than an angel coming down to Earth to have a have a baby with a human woman, uh, to have a, uh, a, a fireball of <laughs> burning gas coming down and having a human, uh, a baby. So, so that really doesn't work. Cause again, it's the exact same, uh, Hebrew phrase. Um, so I, I don't think we can call that a metaphor to use that. So, um, and he lists some other, some other, um, Verses like um, God being called the Father of Lights, every good and perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of Lights, with whom there is no variableness, no shadow of turning. Okay, that's that's kind of poetic language, but it's also literal if stars are angels and give light. Then he's literally the Father of Lights. Well, and Michael Heiser, and us, I see if I can find some of his reference um and uh he he talked about this in his book the unseen realm as we see in psalm 82 that the most high calls the sons of god or the sons of the most high gods this is astounding for people who do not have a supernatural worldview the supreme Elohim, Yahweh, created other Elohim, which became his sons, benign Elohim. The gods were created with the purchase of defending the weak and the fatherless, to uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed, to rescue the weak and the needy. But the gods were rebellious sons, and instead of fulfilling their role, they defended the unjust showed partiality to the wicked and walked about in darkness therefore the almighty elohim rendered a judgment the gods would die like mere mortals in contrast contrast to the rescue plan for humanity the almighty elohim provided no rescue plan for the rebellious elohim they are spiritual beings and the rebellion was treasonous samuel defines the root of rebellion when root of their rebellion when explaining to Saul while he lost his kingship. That was in part what I wanted to share, but it's definitely interesting when you look at the, the language of sons of God, that, that they were benign Elohim, and then Yahweh is, is looked at as, as God, Elohim. You know, he's like, and there, in the English translation, you have Jesus, being described as king, capital K, of kings, lowercase k, Lord, capital L, of lords, lowercase l. So there is an order that he created, and he rules over it. And there was, I don't know, there's, I think there's enough evidence to suggest that there was a rebellion. 
and there wasn't just he created good angels and created bad angels. No, he created everything the way he wanted it. And there's free will that's written into uh, our ability, even the angelic. Yeah. And some chose to rebel. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It does seem to fit better. And I mean, going back to Genesis 6, 4, you have sons of God contrasted with daughters of men. So if we are talking about humans and humans, it, it it's really difficult to understand why you would use a phrase that's talking about Elohim, and then in the very same sentence, talk about a phrase to do, to do with humankind, when what you really meant is both humankind. You know, it's really a stretch. And I'm, I'm doing more, I'm finding more nuggets as to how this Sons of Seth view came in. Um, you know, Doug Hamp says that basically all the church fathers before the, the Nicene Creed was came up with, I think, in the 3rd or 4th century. So they're called the ant, Anta, meaning before Nicene time period between like 100 AD and 300 and something AD they they all understood this to mean angels and you know you have the catholic church under penalty of death uh this interpretation was not allowed to 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 teach that this was angels and then you have um that's interesting you know the uh Julius Africanus kind of floated the idea, but he he just he didn't really believe it necessarily. But he said, "What if it's the sons of Seth?" And Augustine kind of popularized it, and it went from there. But when you have, and that's why um, one of the books I want to get it's it's a little pricey, but but it's like an academic level book that's really highly regarded. Is from. Annette Yoshiko Reed, and Mike Heiser uh, references it in one of his videos. And she wrote a book called, um, see if I can get the title here. Just a sec. It's Fallen Angels, and it's basically about how early Judaism and Christianity understood Enoch and this whole concept. I mean, it's right in line with what we're saying. Let me just... Uh, yes. Can I uh, add to that Yeah. something that Dr. Laura points out? Um, Fallen Angels and the History... So she, Sorry, let me just say the title quick. Fallen Angels and the History of Judaism and Christianity. And the subtitle is... Uh, shoot. The reception of Enochic Enoch, the reception of Enochic literature, and okay. it goes through uh, that history all the way up to medieval times of how this was understood and taught. All right, go ahead. So, like you said, how the early church and those living during those times, probably up to the third century how they how they viewed the ancient world their beliefs of history um i'm going to read this part really quick um 
so she's kind of using Enoch, and this is her, her take on it. While the Bible's account of the origin of the Nephilim is only mentioned briefly in Genesis 6, we can turn to extra biblical texts as a source for more information. It's kind of like what we've already said. For example, the book of Enoch, or more accurately referred to as one Enoch, is a valuable resource that will uncover important clues for us. While I don't consider these extra biblical texts to have the same authority as canonized scripture, I do recognize that Peter and Jude, who are inspired biblical authors, referenced one Enoch to be worthy of referencing in their books. I believe this lends credibility to these extra biblical texts. One Enoch was written during the Second Temple Era, also known as the Instrumental Period, which was between 500 BC and about 70 AD. While the author is unknown, the main character is Enoch, not, not uh, one Enoch is not surprisingly Enoch. Um, so I think that's kind of interesting that she researched that, uh, the time period that it was written, and uh, especially kind of to your point, two authors that is in canonized scripture that God anointed as apostles or as just leaders in the church reference this extra biblical book. So that, that should give to us more uh, credibility when we read it. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, we've, we've talked about kind of the, the context of what they were they were talking about how it it really doesn't fit to say that they were just rebellious angels and it fits so much the language in Enoch and Jubilees and Mike Heiser says which came from Mesopotamian cuz there I don't know a whole lot about that but in Mesopotamian writings there's a whole lot of these concepts are talked about hey, Dr. Uh... Laura also references that I, I won't get into it, but in that same section, um, chapter seven, the origin of Nephilim, she does talk about the Mesopotamian account. Um, and she goes through that a little bit. And even though it, uh, I'll just read the first sentence. There is an ancient Mesopotamian text that tell a story which parallels the origin of the Nephilim as Genesis six. So it's not scripture. It's coming from not even like Enoch that is referenced. So less less credibility, but yet, like you were referenced earlier, if the subject matter doesn't, if it if it lay if if it uh, it lines up with the scripture and it doesn't contradict it, you can use that as. Uh, like scientifically, or it's a confirmation of these other things. You're seeing it repeated on multiple locations around the world. If Jude and Peter are going to use language that were from pagan Mesopotamian stories, they're confirming what's happening. And yes, you'd have to say, you'd have to come up with a reason why they would use that same language and not be referring to that event that even in the Mesopotamian writings is talking about divine beings mating with humans. So, yeah, I think we're, we're really starting to build a case 
you know, based on a lot of the objections, based on the context, how people thought of it then, um, for these interpretations. And we haven't even got into hardly, you know, the, um, the physical evidence, you know, you've got, you know, 15th century explorers coming to, you know, an island and talking about being chased by giants and having to turn their, their cannons on them, you know, and, and all of the, the archeological excavations that have been done and the megaliths and like, we'll get into all of that, I'm sure in coming weeks, but just starting from scripture, and related sources building a case and just to let i hope credibility to how we're understanding scripture and giving texts like enoch credibility if there were no physical evidence if there was no other writings about such creatures if we didn't have the megaliths, if we didn't have the skeletons and all the elongated skulls and all these other pieces of evidence, then we might want to give pause to how we're interpreting the Bible and giving Enoch credibility. But when they line up, we're, we're really building that circumstantial case and saying all these things put together makes a pretty good, pretty good case. For and like you said, what our, what our the, world is. the additional evidence outside of the Bible in the world do point back and confirm the Bible is true. It doesn't contradict. It's it's reinforcing the evidence is reinforcing what the biblical narrative is. Like you said, Moses wrote it. It's a one line. One sentence, he didn't elaborate on the Nephilim or the giants. He said that there was they, they were there and they were there afterwards. But all these other examples kind of give extra information, but confirm uh, yep. they give the what, fr- he, what he said. They give yeah, the framework. They really did exist. And really, when you think about how do we, how do we trust history, like we're not there, we have writings— we have archaeology. We have, so we have to, there's a degree of faith to any history, you know, to say that, you know, King Tut lived or something like that, right? Like, we have to take what we have. And when we take what we have, on any other historical basis, the way you'd understand any secular history or archaeology, we have more than enough evidence to say that these things occurred. Absolutely. And I heard a minister uh, a a few weeks back talking about the historical, outside of the Bible, outside of the Bible, historical reference of that Julius Caesar lived and ruled in Rome is around 10 documents. And everybody believes it, everybody trusts it. But there is around 40 historical references to Jesus living. And and I don't know if those historical documents talk about his death, burial, and resurrection, but the, the historical accurate the, the, the documents do lead credence that he lived. Right. There was a person that lived two thousand years ago named Jesus. And people that's the in Josh McDowell's book, More Than a Carpenter, 
he came in as an atheist. He's like, I'm going to research this thing. I'm going to look historically at who is this Jesus that lived, and I'm going to prove that he was not the son of God. And he looked at the evidence for and against, and it came to faith. He came to faith. But to your point, that yeah, I'm, I'm referencing that, like you were saying, there's historical documents out there that you can use. I told you when I went to Rome, you can do a Google search, General Titus. There is an arch in Rome. General Titus was the general who led the armies of Rome into Jerusalem in 70 AD that destroyed the temple, took artifacts from the temple, the holy artifacts, back to Rome. And in that arch that is still standing to this day is a carving of a parade with them with a candlestick and these holy artifacts that is mentioned in the Old Testament as God commanded Moses to create and to put in the temple. So here is the second temple that was destroyed by the Romans, historical, physical. It's not written in a, in a book. This is a literal stone arch that you could walk under and see the image that was carved in there. So it, it's just another piece of evidence to show that these different things in history did take place. Yeah. There's lots of examples. So, yeah. No, I think that's I that's excellent because Lee Strobel did the same thing. If you know about the case for Christ, the case for faith, the case for the resurrection, all those books that he wrote. And he was an atheist uh, married to a, a Christian, his wife, and as a journalist. So that was his job uh, set about to kind of disprove these things. And when the, yeah, when the preponderance of evidence and the most likely explanation is something strange, maybe, maybe fantastical, almost mythical, but when the evidence is pointing there, it's actually more likely that that took place when your evidence points that way. And that's, yeah, that's where Josh McDowell took it with more than a carpenter and where Lee Strobel takes it. And, yeah. you know, I, and I, we I, should use the same type of logic yep. when it comes to researching this subject matter. Yeah, for sure. And I don't know if there's a book I I'm thinking about the title, The Case for Giants. And I don't I don't know if there's a book with that exact title. I know there's books that probably do the, the type of thing we're doing, we're talking about. But I think that would be really fascinating to kind of gather that if it's not in like one place, kind of how Mike Heiser says, the unseen realm, no original thoughts were his. He just synthesized all of the information and put it together. And I think that's that's kind of a goal that, that I have as we're discussing is putting all this information together. If it's not been done already, I don't know, maybe we're, we're recreating the wheel, but I like the idea of drawing from different sources like Doug. Hamm. I'm going to bring this book um, with me when I come, come up um, for Thanksgiving. Cause I, I think you'll, you'll get a lot out of it. Um, even just skimming. That it. was Laura. I'm going to read. What uh, was that called? Yeah, it is. And she, cause she did a, a great amount of research. What's it called? So this is in the section, the, the it's called the, the roots of the federal reserve tracing the Nephilim from Noah to the U S dollar. So she's tying in the Genesis 6 account, what took place around the world, and how the the character traits of the Nephilim 
continued through the centuries, even to the physical ground of Jekyll Island off the coast of Georgia, where the Federal Reserve was created. Was where the brainchild, where the meet, the meeting took place of these powerful leaders in, in secret of darkness um, back in 1913, created the Federal Reserve. And they use they they purposely use the term or the title Federal Reserve, even though it's not federal and it's not a reserve, it's not attached to the US government whatsoever, because the people during that day would not accept a centralized bank to be in control. Because they had tried previous years to create it and failed and failed yeah, and failed. Jefferson fought great reference it. book. I have it on Audible. Oh, it's called The Creature from Jekyll Island. Yeah, I have that. About I have the Federal that too. Reserve. Yeah. But let me read this really quick. This is under her Mesopotamian account. So obviously this is a third party, not biblical, but it kind of leads credence to what we're saying. So that the epic of Gil Gilgamesh, a poem that is considered one of the earliest surviving literally, liter literary, literary masterpiece. Literary, I can't talk. <laughs> yes. Literary masterpieces is an, another from Mesopotamia text that lends to confirmation of the presence, pre presence of the Nephilim. In the Book of Giants, several times the giants are listed and Galgamesh is listed as the offspring of the Watchers. It tells how Galgamesh, king of Uruk, oppresses his people. He sexually assaults the Uruk brides on their wedding night. He was said to be a third human and two thirds divine, a hybrid like Nephilim. The epic poem de depicts the relationship between Gilgamesh and uh, another person, I can't pronounce it. The oppressed people of Uruk cry out to their God. So I don't know, it's just an, one after another after another examples of, um, of examples of stories from around the world um, that 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 teach the same thing. Yeah, that mesh with it. That, um, Re real quick, did, does she get into the book about uh, Tim Bentz and his uh, his uh, trip to Jekyll Island? Because she references she, on the I know, show. I know she verbally had, had said it in the podcast. Um, I don't know because I haven't read this whole book. I've just kind of picked in. Okay, picked out different parts to to look at yeah that would be um, that would be um interesting to go through find that find that youtube interview with him i think rob skiba might have of done an interview with him where he tells that whole story but uh i think that would be that'd be really cool to look at thanks for listening to the days of noah podcast my name is pete my brother luke was on the other line Calling in from the great state of Louisiana. Join us next week. We're going to continue the discussion. Trying to understand the times we're in. Uncovering the past. Connecting it with the present. Discerning the future. <laughs>